Well, thank you uh, very much for the opportunity to fellowship with you, to worship with you uh, today, and to be able to minister the Word of God uh, to you. I said to Naomi before leaving, uh, I know a number of the, the ladies in St. Melons, the men are all together unknown to me. But thankfully that's been changed a little bit uh, today, and particularly thankful uh, to David and Jane for their gracious hospitality to Naomi and I this afternoon. Let's turn then, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, and tonight, I want us to um, think about verse 18. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, where Paul instructed the Thessalonians, and it would hold true for us tonight, to give thanks in all circumstances. Or as another translation has it, in everything, give thanks. Thank you. It's amazing the extent to which we can bless another human being simply by saying thank you. No doubt we ourselves have had our spirits lifted when someone we love and respect has said a sincere thank you to us. Uh, And I hope that when many of us, if not all of us, stood on our doorsteps during the opening months of the pandemic to applaud Um, NHS staff and key workers to say thank you for the way in which they were risking their lives and working hard for our sake. Uh, I hope that inspired and motivated them. Thank you. Those two words are some of the simplest in the English language. So much so that even a young child can say them. They may not want to say them, but they have the ability to say them. And yet they are some of the most powerful words we have at our disposal. And Paul makes it abundantly clear here in verse 18 that these are words which God would have to be prominent in the believer's vocabulary. Give thanks in all circumstances. We'll be looking at that uh, in the second half. But firstly, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Perhaps when you first became a Christian, one of your first questions was, what is God's will for my life? Or perhaps when you reach something of a spiritual midlife crisis, when you began to look back and think, what have I done with this redeemed life that the Lord granted me? And you, you might have asked yourself, what is the Lord's will for my life? Time is running on. I haven't got long left before he calls me. I want to make sure I've used my life in the way he would have me to use it. And we tend to think by that when we went, what is God's will for my life? Who should I marry? Where should I live? Which church should I serve in? What kind of ministry should I exercise? And although those are all good things to be asking of the Lord and praying about, what you find in the scriptures is that when God's will is made clear to us, it's not to about those issues. It's about what kind of people God would have us to be. Whoever we marry, wherever we live, whichever local church we worship in, whatever ministry we exercise, whatever our job is, what kind of person ought I now to be? As a new creation in Christ Jesus, what characteristic should mark my heart and life? And Paul tells us here that one thing God requires of his people is that they display what one writer has called an attitude of gratitude. Now, when I first read that, I thought it sounds a little bit corny, but it is helpful to remember, isn't it, and to to fix our thoughts on, an attitude of gratitude. 
Uh, and Paul actually speaks about this on a number of occasions in his epistles. Just one illustration at this point, uh, Ephesians 5, Paul says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So Paul says you have a tongue, use it, but don't use it for filthy talk and crude joking. Use it to give thanks. And interestingly, uh, also in Ephesians 5, Paul regards thanksgiving as fitting or proper for saints. In other words, this is how saints should behave. This is their identity. This is how they reveal themselves, by their giving thanks. So we're not talking here about something which is desirable in the disciples of Jesus. This would be lovely if we would be a thankful people. No, Paul tells us here in 1 Thessalonians 5, this is God's will for us. This is what God requires of us. This is his instruction to us. Master, speak, thy servant heareth. And what have you to say to me? Well, here it is, says God, give thanks. And Paul says, by saying that thanksgiving is fitting or proper, appropriate for saints, he's saying that anything else other than thankfulness is for the child of God unbecoming, disgraceful. For Paul, a child of God who is not thankful is a contradiction in terms. Now, interestingly, in verse 23... Paul links what we're looking at tonight, this attitude of gratitude, with what he refers to as our sanctification. Notice, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And it's important to to bring verse 23 into the matter at this point, because verse 23 hasn't just landed on the page out of nowhere. You know, Paul has been talking about other matters, and then he realizes, oh, the ink is running out in my pen. I've got to finish soon. Oh, I better throw something in about sanctification before I close. No, verse 23 in sanctification is inextricably linked with everything Paul has been saying up to that point. In fact, it's the climax, it's the conclusion of what he's been saying. My point is this, in the letter as a whole, and particularly in the section that I've uh, read to you tonight from verse 12, and our verses in that section, Paul has been talking about our sanctification. This is sanctification. It's being at peace amongst one another. It's admonishing the idle. It's encouraging the faint-hearted. It's helping the weak. It's being patient with all. It's always seeking to do good to one another. It's rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks. This is sanctification. And then Paul says in verse 23, and I pray that God would do this in you, and I have every confidence that God will do this in you. So you see how it all fits together. He talks about sanctification. I'm going to say what that is now. But he talks about sanctification, and then he closes it by saying, and I pray that this is what God will bring about in you, and I am convinced that God will bring it about in you, because he is a faithful God who always finishes what he starts. So this attitude of gratitude, this giving thanks, is, says Paul, part of our sanctification. Now, what is sanctification? (laughs) Well, you could say, um, put it like this, Paul means this work of transformation, which the Spirit of God does 
in the life of a person he has regenerated. That's sanctification. It's this work of transformation which the Spirit of God performs in the life of a person he has regenerated. So think now, the Holy Spirit gives a child or an adult new birth. And then what does he do? He sets to work changing that person from the inside out, making them a new person at heart and making them someone who reflects the Lord Jesus Christ in thought, word, deed, and motivation. You know the old uh, saying, which is very helpful, isn't it? That God takes us as we are, but he never leaves us as we are. He takes us in order to transform us, to transform us so that we mirror the mind and the heart and the will of Jesus Christ. And again, uh, I think this may be a helpful way of putting it. Sanctification is God getting hold of a sinner and changing them into someone they never were or someone they weren't before he got hold of them and someone they would never have been if he hadn't got hold of them. Something they weren't before he got hold of them and something they could never have been if he hadn't got hold of them. That's sanctification. What does that look like in practice? It's the verses that I read. It's becoming people who encourage the faint-hearted, who are patient with all, who do good to one another, who rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and who give thanks. Now then, remember what I've just said. Sanctification is God transforming somebody into something else. And they become somebody they weren't before and could not be without him. Paul is saying then that one of the things the Spirit produces that isn't there to begin with and would not have been there at all but for the Spirit's intervention is an attitude of gratitude. He makes regenerated people thankful people. So what Paul is saying is that before God comes to dwell in us, before God gets hold of us and begins to shape and mould and transform us, we are not thankful people. We do not have an attitude of gratitude and we never would be if he did not come in to change us. That's an astonishing claim, isn't it? Paul is saying really that you cannot find this in the unbeliever, that only those who are born again by the power of God's Spirit can ever be marked by an attitude of gratitude, that thankfulness is seen exclusively in the people of God. Now, what do you make of that? Because that seems, does it not, to contradict what we have seen with our own eyes and heard with our own ears. Can't we all think of people we know who have no interest in the Lord Jesus Christ whatsoever? And yet we can say without a shadow of a doubt that they are people with an attitude of gratitude, who are quick to say thank you. Yes, there is no doubt a great deal of ingratitude in our world. And I think during the pandemic, for one reason or another, that's become more and more apparent, actually. And complaining and murmuring and discontent has become more and more obvious. I think a couple of things may contribute to um, ingratitude. 
I think there is a growing sense of entitlement in our day, isn't there? We hear an awful lot about rights, things I have a right to. Uh, when I taught, I won't say where, um, but when I taught for a couple of years before going into the ministry, uh, in every classroom, including the one I had, uh, on the door was produced by the school a list of rights and responsibilities. Interestingly, we never had any as teachers. We didn't seem to have any rights. But uh, the pupils had rights and responsibilities. And the rights were about twice as long as the responsibilities. And there's that spirit, isn't there, of, well, I deserve this. I have a right to this. I'm entitled to this. Um, and it's interesting, I heard um, uh, on the news recently about um, uh, a, a, a doctor, a female doctor, who was working on a, a ward that was dealing with patients with long COVID. Uh, and what she was saying was this, that um, she was urging the government to recognise long COVID as a distinct condition so that it would have specific funding uh, and staff set aside to treat patients with long COVID. And she was saying, because the trouble is at the moment, because we don't have this funding, because the government won't recognise long COVID as a distinct condition and disease, patients are not getting the treatment they deserve. This sense that we're entitled to this. And of course, when we have that entitlement and I deserve it and I have a right to this, then we lose all sense of gratitude for it, don't we? Well, I'm entitled to this. Why should I say thank you? It's what I should expect. And that sense of entitlement is stifling gratitude in our day. And then gratitude, of course, is strangled by greed, isn't it? When we are given something today, it's never enough, is it? And we, we're always focusing on what we haven't got. When you hear a funding that has been given uh, to some project or whatever, it's always, well, this is nowhere near enough. This will never meet the need. And all right, that might be the case. But there's never, we'll be grateful for what we've got if only we can have a little bit more. And so we do see this ingratitude, particularly being bred in our culture today through this sense of entitlement and greed. And we probably see these things in our own hearts, don't we? But it's not fair to say that all we ever see in the hearts of unbelievers is ingratitude and unthankfulness. So is Paul wide of the mark then? When he says, as one person puts it, that the giving of thanks is purely the fruit of grace. It's only something produced in us by God's work of grace in us. But Paul is not wrong to say that this gratitude can only be known by the Christian. And I'll tell you why. Two things about this, because he's got a specific kind of gratitude in mind. And this is a supernatural gratitude that you will not, indeed you cannot find, apart from a transforming work of God in your life. Two things distinguishing this kind of gratitude then from the gratitude an unbeliever may display. Firstly, the gratitude to which Paul is referring here in verse 18 is gratitude not to our fellow human beings, but to God. Even the most thankful of unbelievers limits his thankfulness to those around him, but he never thanks God for what he has done. He will not recognise that what he has has come from the gracious hand of Almighty God. Paul says in, in Romans 1 that God is angry. And God is rightly angry. 
We read the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. You see Paul's point. God has revealed himself to human beings. He has revealed himself in creation. Man sees this. Man knows this. But because it's an inconvenient truth, because it's a truth that would require a response, because it's a truth that would have a claim upon us, we deny it. We suppress it. And one thing we suppress is this knowledge that what we have, we have been given by God. That we have been granted this graciously by a creator. We don't want that. And so Paul says we suppress it and we do. That's the, the, the condition of the unbeliever. In Romans 1 and 2, he's outlining the heart of the unbeliever. And one attitude and part of it is that we do not give thanks to God. In 2 Timothy, Paul speaks about what life will be like in the last days. He's talking about between the two comings of our Lord Jesus. He said, this is what life will be like. Amongst other things, men will be un thankful. That's the condition of the unbeliever tonight. It was your position and my position before God graciously intervened to change us. The unbeliever refuses to acknowledge that everything profitable, pleasant, and edifying that he has, life itself, health, food, shelter, family, employment, security, all these things he enjoys by the grace of God and through the kindness of God. And in that sense, the unbelieving man and woman, boy and girl, tramples on the goodness of God. How gracious God is that he gives all these things to those who stubbornly, Paul makes that clear in Romans 1, it's not as simple as, a, oh, I just didn't know. If only I knew, I would have said thank you, but I just didn't know. Paul says it's deeper than that. It's a willful ignorance. It's a stubborn refusal to accept the light. And yet God still gives it to those who use the life he gives to curse him, God still gives that life. To those who use their intellect and their skill to try and lead others away from God, he still gives skill and intellect. He gives food and health and all these things. To, he is good to everything he has made. How gracious God is. He just gives and gives and gives. And man just rejects and rejects and rejects. But God gives and he gives and he gives. 
But in one sense, as much as it is wonderful that even as we reject him, God is still kind, it's also scary. Because every time we reject, we store up judgment for ourselves on the last day. Another example of rebellion and ingratitude to God. And Paul makes it clear it is an extremely serious sin to take what God has given, but to give him no thanks for it. Because of this, says Paul, the wrath of God is revealed. Friend, perhaps you don't know Christ here tonight. Think of all that you enjoy. Those things that are pleasurable, profitable, edifying. God has given them to you. You didn't ask him for them. Perhaps you've denied he even exists. He's given them to you. And you've rejected them. Or you haven't rejected them. Rather, you've received them and rejected any sense of the thoughts of kindness, the kindness of God. A serious offence. But God has provided someone even greater than life and health and food. He's provided Jesus Christ. Who, if you receive him tonight, if you trust in him, if you acknowledge your ingratitude to God, but say, Lord, here I come tonight. Can I have this extra gift, this supreme gift of Jesus as my saviour? All that ingratitude will be wiped away and remembered no more. And believer, haven't we got cause to say, thank you, Lord. I took your gifts, I spurned them. I took your kindness, I trampled on it. But you kept coming and you kept calling. And as we sang this morning, however long from mercy, our hearts have turned away. God still knocks and praise God that he kept doing it. But the Holy Spirit, we know, opens our eyes, doesn't he? And when we, the Spirit begins to deal with us, what happens? We begin to see, as James puts it, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. So here's our sanctification, our transformation. You see, by nature, we reject any thought that these things have come from God. We reject any sense of a debt of gratitude to him. But the Spirit comes and he opens our eyes to see our debt of gratitude. And he puts within us that cry of thanksgiving to the Lord. If you have a, a cry of thanksgiving in your heart tonight, God put it there. And that in itself is a gift for which to give him thanks. And what Paul is doing here in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 is he's calling on these Christians, and he would do it to us tonight as well, to purposefully and to consciously give thanks to God for the benefits with which he daily loads us. And there are other examples, I won't go into them for time's sake in the epistles, just one I'll give then, where he says to the Ephesians, give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a staggering number of things we have for which to thank God. Everything the unbeliever enjoys, those material blessings, God gave them to us. And if he were to choose to withhold them, they would be withheld. 
the merciful provision of God. But friends, we've got so much more than the, the unbeliever. We're the recipients not only of his common grace, but his special grace. God has opened for us, as it were, a cupboard in which special blessings are stored. And that cupboard is never open for the unbeliever. But in grace, God, as his word, has said to us, I've got another cupboard. Come and have a look inside. How many of these can I have? All of them. Some of them you'll have to wait for until you get to glory. But many of them you can have now. And even the ones you can't have now, you can live in excited anticipation that one day they will be yours. Just think of these special gifts, exclusive gifts that God has given to us, his people. Expensive gifts. The price, Christ's own blood. It cost him the cross that we might have these. Christ has paid for these gifts for us. Think of what they are. All our sins forgiven. Not on probation. All forgiven at once, forever. Full and free forgiveness. He's justified us. He's given us Christ's righteousness so that without any legal fiction, without it being God turning a blind eye, he can say to us tonight, you are in my sight flawless. Spotless, blameless. You satisfy every requirement. He's adopted us. We have a, a father a judge who has taken us home. My father, before he went into the ministry, was a, a social worker, and he worked around various departments, and one was working with children, uh, and he was involved with adoptions, and you'd go to the court where the judge would formalise the adoption. I remember Dad in a sermon saying about how, on many occasions, he'd see the judge you know, declare, well, today, you know, you, uh, you, you become the son or daughter of so-and-so, and that was lovely, and, and the judges were always very nice and kind people. But Dad said, I never saw a judge in that court say, come home with me. But that's what God has done with us. And we sang it to begin with. The judge of all will take his children home. And he's not only declared us righteous, but he's adopted us. I think it was Calvin said, adoption is the crowning glory of our justification. We have access to him in prayer. We can bring our needs, our, our, our petitions before the one who created everything. This awesome, unfathomable God says, pour out your heart to me. Tell me everything. He supplies our every need. He preserves us from the evil one. And one day he's going to bring us to new heavens and a new earth where we won't only dwell with him, but we will reign with him. Top lady got it, didn't he? How vast the benefits divine which we in Christ possess. All this he's done for us and he keeps going. He's a wonderfully generous God, isn't he? A warm-hearted, open-handed father. How can we not give thanks to him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? And yet, the very fact that Paul has to exhort the Thessalonians to give thanks and the Ephesians and the Colossians suggests that we do not always give thanks to God as we ought. 
Why might that be? Can I just throw out, I won't develop them, can I just throw out three reasons why perhaps we don't give thanks to God as we ought? Firstly, and we know this with material blessings, and it can be true of spiritual blessings, isn't it alarmingly possible for us to grow so accustomed to what God has done for us and what he still does for us that it becomes in our thinking purely ordinary? We take it for granted. And isn't it astonishingly easy, chillingly easy, to hear, as we have tonight, that God has forgiven all our sins through the sacrifice of his son, that God has adopted us into his family, and to really be quite unmoved by it. Oh Lord, keep us with that thrill of our salvation. Secondly, we can become so enthralled with the gifts, can't we, that we take our eyes off the giver. Naomi's, uh, well, somebody in the family, again, I won't go into a name just in case, but somebody in the family has six children. Uh, So you can imagine what Christmas is like. Uh, We had it uh, with them, just gone. Uh, Six children, and they've got aunts and uncles coming out of their years. You can imagine how many gifts they get at Christmas. And I remember a couple of years ago, the room was laden with presents and they were running from one to the other, ripping the paper off and then to another one and then to another one. Uh, and their mother had to say, hang on, you don't even know who these gifts are from. So enthralled with the gifts that who they were from went out of the window. We can be like that, can't we? Ourselves. And thirdly, of course, we can become greedy, as we said. So what God gives is never quite enough. Do you know what I think we need to do? It's what David does in Psalm 103. Go home and and read Psalm 103. Do you know what David does? David makes a point of calling to mind all that God has given him. He says to his soul, forget not all his benefits. He says to his soul, think now, itemize, count your blessings, name them one by one, take stock of what you have. He carries out what we would call an inventory of God's gifts. Uh, And I don't know whether he wrote them down on paper or whether he kept them in his head, but he wouldn't have had paper, of course, in that sense, but he goes through it. What have I got? What has God given me? How has he blessed me? And you get the feeling in Psalm 103, as he goes through all these blessings, his soul begins to soar. And we've got this great song, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And sometimes we're so busy getting on with life that I think it would be better for us to stop and to build some time even into our day. Put it in with your quiet time or whatever, where you simply think about all that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just think of what he has given us and perhaps we may find ourselves, as Paul puts it to the Colossians, abounding with thanksgiving. That's the first thing which distinguishes this kind of gratitude that Paul is speaking of in verse 18 from the gratitude which an unbeliever might display. It's gratitude to God, recognising God as the source of all these blessings. Now, secondly and finally, the gratitude Paul has in mind here is unique to the believer because as he makes clear, it's a gratitude which is expressed in all circumstances. In other words, Paul says to the Thessalonians and to us, give thanks to God in adversity 
as well as prosperity, when the sea is rough, as well as when it is calm, not only when all is going well, but when we're in the midst of trials and tribulations. Paul says, do this. The unbeliever cannot. Paul says, the Christian can, and we must. Paul modelled it for us, didn't he? Many of these letters uh, that he wrote in the New Testament, he wrote whilst under house arrest. That wouldn't have been fun. And yet he models thankfulness in these letters. I thank my God for this. I thank my God for that. Paul modelled it. It can be done. How? How can we meaningfully, not just in a sort of, well, you know, the pastor or the visiting preacher or whatever said to me that I've got to do this, so I better do it. But it's, you know, there's no joy in it. How can we meaningfully give thanks to God when we're caught in the midst of a ferocious storm? Can I give you a number of things for which we can thank God, even in the most tumultuous of circumstances? To begin with, we can give thanks to God for the fact that he is in control of the storm. So when we're in the storm, the first thing we can do is to give thanks to God for the fact that he is in control of the storm because when the unbeliever is in a storm all he can see is that he is not in control and so for him nobody is in control but for us when the storm hits and we see that we are not in control we fall back on the truth that God is in control do you know that's a foundational truth that I've learned because we always need to feel in control don't we And what happens when a situation hits, the first thing we try and do is control it all ourselves. And then we find that we can't control it, and so we try and control it even more. And that makes us even more agitated because we find we can't control it, and we keep going and we keep going. If the only way we can ever know peace is by being in control of a situation, then there'll be times when we won't know peace. Because if you have an aggressive tumour inside of you, you cannot control it. And there are times when things in the family are falling apart and you cannot control it. And so if you can only know peace when you feel in control, then you'll forever be out of peace. But if what matters for you is, is there somebody in control? It's not me, but is somebody else in control? And God is always in control. You can know peace so you can give thanks to God he is in control this is not a completely out of control situation secondly we can give thanks to God for the fact that he will not allow us to be overwhelmed by the storm but rather he will serve as an anchor for us in that storm so you remember he said in Isaiah and his words to the Messiah first of all but they hold true for us as well when you pass through the waters I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. So the Lord says, you'll go through the waters, but I'll be with you. You'll go through the rivers, but they won't overflow you. When you walk through the fire, we'd all like to say, Lord, I don't want to go through the fire. He says, you're going through the fire, but you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Thirdly, we can give thanks to God for the fact that this storm will bring about the greatest good in our life which is not comfort and it's not ease and it's not peace 
as the world would regard peace, is Christ-likeness. It's becoming more like him. That is the greatest good. It is the most beautiful gift. And the most ferocious storm brings about this most precious result. Paul says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And that's not, don't worry, you know, it's all going pear-shaped today. God must have something better planned for you. It's, don't worry, in this, God's your anchor and God will work to bring about Christ-likeness. And of course, fourthly, we can thank God for the fact that one day he will put an end to all the storms and then we will know only peace. God is in control. God will be our anchor. God will bring about the greatest good from this. And one day God will say, enough is enough. I've been your anchor all these years, but enough now is enough. And it's time for you to enter into your rest. Those are things the unbeliever can never say in the storm. The unbeliever cannot say, it's all right, God is in control. The unbeliever can never say, it's all right, God is my anchor. The unbeliever can never say, it's all right, out of this, God will bring something truly beautiful. And the unbeliever can never say, one day, God will put an end to all this. But the Christian can. And in the most ferocious of storms, we have cause to be grateful to God for these things. What's more, of course, we can give thanks to God for the fact that whatever we may have to confront in this life, That which is most precious, or should be most precious, that which constitutes our real treasure, Christ and all we have in him, is never threatened. Whatever else is taken away by the storm, Christ remains. And our spiritual blessings in him. And that's something to give thanks to God for. I thank you, Lord, that the storm is raging all around and all within, but these things are not shaken in the slightest. And then, of course, the last point. It's always the case, however bad a situation might appear, if it were not for God's restraining hand, it would be a thousand times worse. We can't always see that, but God restrains even the most ferocious storm in our lives. Listen to this. Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, was on one occasion robbed by highwaymen. He wrote in his diary that day, let me be thankful, first, because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my purse, which was how men referred to their wallets in those days, although they took my purse, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took all I had, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed, not I who did the robbing. I'd rather be robbed than a robber, he says. What a refreshing and liberating way to look at a trial. Matthew Henry says, I could have been in this situation before. God spared me this so long. And they could have taken, I could have lost so much more than I have. What a refreshing way. Roger Carswell said, let us not forget... Whatever happens, we have more than we deserve. 
We have been treated better than we deserve. We have lived longer than we deserve. And one day we are going to heaven. There is plenty for which to thank God. And as I come to a close, can I just say, perspective is all important, isn't it? That's what the Bible gives often. In trials, the Bible gives perspective. For example, I do not count the, uh, my present sufferings worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in me. In other words, what Paul is saying is, viewed on their own, viewed in isolation, the present sufferings overwhelm. But Paul says, when I put them alongside what is to come, that doesn't make them disappear, and it doesn't make the pain go away, but it puts things into perspective, and it injects hope and light into a situation. Perspective. Viewing things in perspective, and how we um, choose to think about something. That's what the Bible does, is train us to think. It's all important. Can I give you this illustration? A hot air balloonist was grounded by appalling weather at an international ballooning festival. And he was asked if he was disappointed. And he said this, I would rather be on the ground wishing I was in the air than be in the air wishing I was on the ground. Perspective, you see. But how many of us, and how would I, I'd be totally overwhelmed by, oh, do you know, I was so looking forward to that competition uh, and I couldn't take part and everything's miserable. When actually he says, you know, If I'd gone up there, look what would happen to me. I'm thankful that I was not taken up there. What does that teach us? Mindset matters. And you know what sanctification is? Really, in a nutshell, Paul tells us in Romans 12. It's the renewing of our minds. It's the trouble, you see, in our unconverted state, our thinking, nothing to do with intellect, can be the most uh, intellectually gifted person around, our thinking is off. Our thinking is wrong. Because our mind is clouded by sin and unbelief. And what God does is take our mind and retrain it to think from a biblical perspective. And may God enable us to do that in trials and in storms so that we may find ourselves able to give thanks in all circumstances. And in that, distinguish ourselves as the people of God. And in that, demonstrate the power of God's salvation in our lives. I close with these words from a a 19th century French novelist. He said, some people are always grumbling because roses have thorns. I am thankful that thorns have roses. Again, the way we choose to look at things makes all the difference.